Chapter 2 of Forgotten Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shreya Sethi. Forgotten Gold by Julian Stafford Corbett. Chapter 2 It was not till the morning after my father's death that Sir Fluke rode over from Ashton with Harry. The old knight was redder in the face than ever. There were tears in his eyes too as he took my hand and sat down by the great hearth in the hall without speaking. As for Harry, he threw his arms around my neck and shyly pressed into my hand his set of gilded hawk bells, the most precious thing he had. I had long envied him the toys and his kindness set my tears flowing fast again. Don't grieve, Jasper, he said. You must not grieve. Dad will be your father now. He said he would as we rode along. He told me to tell you he was your guardian now. And we are really brothers at last, Jasper. I looked at Sir Fluke, but he only nodded his head. His face was very red, and I knew he could not have spoken without sobbing. So Harry and I talked on in low tones till the old knight found his voice. He spoke angrily at last, but I did not mind his chiding, for somehow I knew it was only to hide his grief, lest we boys should see his weakness. Yes, I am your guardian now, lad, said he, and since I am, why in God's name did you not send for me before instead of letting your father lie all night like a dog that none cares to bury? Please you, sir, said I. Miles rode out an hour after he died, as I thought, to bring the news to you. An hour after his death, cried Sir Fluke. On what devil's errand went he then, for he came not to tell me till six o'clock this morning? Whither rode Miles last night? I asked then of Cecily, who was sobbing hard by. Know you? And has he come back? Nay, I know not your worships, she said, save that he went to your worship as he said, and, and, and what woman, cried Sir Fluke testily. On an errand of his dead masters, please your worships, whispered Cecily, an errand by your worships leave into Chatham. And what, O God's name, cried the knight, took him there? Nay, I know not, replied Cecily with a look of that sort of humility much used by her class, which is very near of kin to defiance. Unless it were to take order for his poor worship's funeral with the elect that be there. What say you? roared Sir Fluke. You pestilent canting scrag end of Eve's flesh, what by the fat of the friend has your Calvinistic knave of a husband to do with a gentleman's funeral? Knows he not? the dog, that it is I who shall order his master's affairs. Is this all that comes of Festing's posted discipline? I told him he was wrong. He was always wrong, and here's the end of it. The elect, too. The elect knaves, the elect devils. Do you know, you canting jade, that because Mary is dead, you shall play what pranks you like with a gentleman's body? By this light, you misjudge Henry's and Mistress Anne's daughter. If your thick heads think that. 
By this time, Sir Fluke had railed himself clean out of breath, and as he ceased, we could hear the sound of horses' feet in the courtyard. Run, lads, said Sir Fluke, and if that be Miles, bring him before me. To the door we went, and sure enough found Miles had returned, but not alone. Dismounting from his shabby jades were two men, dressed all in black. One of them I knew by sight, having seen him about Chatham and Rochester. He had a round red face with a shrewd, solid look in it and dancing blue eyes full of merriment which even now, though I think he tried to look as grave as he could, he was unable to get master off. His companion was a grave, dark-eyed man of dull complexion, whose look repelled me as much as the others attracted. Peace be on this house, the two men chimed when they had finished tumbling off their horses, which they did in so clumsy a manner as even then almost made me laugh. Peace, and be its sorrow comforted. The red-faced man then came forward up the steps and took my hand so kindly that I felt at once that I had found a new friend. Master Festing, he said, I know you and desire your worship's better acquaintance. Me you know not, though I was your good father's friend. He would not have it so known, but let that pass. Know me for Master Drake of Chatham, sometime preacher to his majesty's fleet, and soon to be again, let us hope, now the evil times be overpast and joyful days be come again for all true reformation men. His black clothes were very shabby and of old-fashioned cut, and there came with him up the steps and into the hall a savoury smell of tar on the sea. Yes, my lad, went on Mr. Drake, for your worship was quite out of tune with his kind fatherly way. This is an hour of sorrow for you, but one of joy for England. A weight is lifted from England's heart, and yours shall rise with hers. For, saving a decent grief for your father's loss, no true Englishman should weep when his country claps her hands and leaps with gladness. I did not well understand him then, though I knew he meant to comfort me, for in those days we knew little of what was coming, when such words as Mr. Drake's would be on everyone's lips. England was crushed and broken then, shuddering still under the curse of Rome and Spain. I was no more a prophet than the rest, and could ill understand why this little red-faced preacher should draw himself up in his shabby clothes with glittering eyes, till he almost looked as though he had come out of my Plutarch, best loved of books. I was glad when he stopped and turned to his friend. I had forgot, said Mr. Drake, be better acquainted with my right worshipful and approved good friend, Mr. Death, one of the faithful flock, Mr. Festing, that through the bloody times, which now be past, has watched and prayed for England beyond the seas in Frankfurt, withstanding steadfastly all backsliders there, and helping Mr. Knox to file away the popish trust that still clung to King Edward's service book. He seemed to think that because my father had been a secret but active Puritan, I must be one too, and well versed in all those unhappy controversies with which the English exiles made their banishment doubly hard, and laid the seeds of many troubles that even now grow each day rancor. I, that I did, 
said Mr. Death, unfastening his lips, and should have prevailed at last against that bad, factious Erastian Dr. Cox, had he not so traitorously procured us to be driven forth by the gallows of that city. If any man has dealt traitorously with you, Mr. Death, said Harry, it were well you should come within and speak with my father, who is a justice, and will see you righted, I doubt not. I, echoed I, come within and speak with my guardian, who will surely welcome all my father's friends. Our words had quite another effect to that which we had expected, for both the preachers stopped short before the door, looking hard at each other. Mr. Death seemed to grow more pale than before, and to be at a loss what to do. But Mr. Drake's face I saw grow to so stern a look of resolution, as only in one other have I seen equalled. Come, brother, said he, we have a blow to strike, so let us strike quick and hard. And with that he strode across the hall to where Sir Fluke was sitting, who sprang up fiercely when he saw the preachers. Drake, cried he, what in the devil's name make you here? In the devil's name I make nothing, Sir Fluke, answered Drake unflinchingly. But come to stay you marring in the devil's name a dead man's wishes, and in God's name to charge you to deliver up to me the body of Nicholas Festing for burial. I verily believe that had it been the sour-faced Mr. Death that had given their errand, he would there and then have been sent forth with such a dish of blows seasoned with hot railing as would have kept him satisfied for many a day. But Sir Fluke, like King Henry and our blessed Queen, knew a man when he saw him, and surprised me by his quiet answer. You open your mouth wide, Drake. By what authority do you expect me to fill it? Here is one, answered Drake, that you will be the last to gainsay, if men know you for what you are. And with that, he took from his breast a paper and handed it to Sir Fluke. He carefully examined the signature and writing, and then gave it back to Drake. Nicholas Festing wrote that, I doubt not, said he, and then, looking Drake hard in the face, went on. Read it to me, and read it truly, if you are a man. Without wincing a jot under Sir Fluke's stare, Mr. Drake took the paper and read as follows. Know all men whom it may concern, and above all Sir Fluke Waldeve of Ashton, knight, to whom I have given care of all my earthly affairs, that it is my last wish that in all which concerns the spiritual and heavenly part of me, no man shall meddle, save as my approved friend Mr. Drake, preacher of Chatham, shall direct, and him I charge to deliver my soul to God and my body to earth, after the manner of the reformed church, and free from popish, idolatrous, and superstitious ceremonies, saving always the laws of this realm. For I would have all men know that I, as I have lived, in the purified and ancient church of Christ, in testimony whereof, above all, I desire to be buried without jangling of bells, or mistrustful prayers, or conjuring with incense, as though my happy state with God were doubtful, and reverently laid in the earth, with thanks to God, in certain hope of a glorious resurrection. For a moment, Sir Fluke looked at me, as though he would ask me to read the paper too. But almost immediately, he stared hard again at Mr. Drake and was satisfied. Enough, he said, plainly much pained. How will you bury him? By the rites and use amongst the true English remnant at Geneva, croaked Mr. Death, who, seeing all danger was over, now came forward. There alone is found the true law of God. 
There alone has the threshing floor been swept clean of. Peace, fool, said Sir Fluke sharply. If Nicholas Festing wishes to be put under the sod like a canting Calvinistical knave by God's head he shall be, saving always, as he said, the laws of this realm. I want no pestilent, heretical sermons from you, but only information to lay before the council, whither I ride this very day according to my duty as a justice of the Queen's most excellent majesty. And, look you, Drake promised me to do nothing till I return. My hand on that, Sir Fluke, said Drake, heartily holding out a hand not unsustained with pitch, which my guardian, after a moment's hesitation, took. With that, the preachers departed, and Sir Fluke soon after followed them on his way to London, much saddened, as I think, to see what manner of man his friend had been. Whether he was heard by the council or not, I cannot tell. Certain it is, however, that on his return he took no steps to prevent the funeral. I expect, if the truth were known, his zeal won little encouragement from the council. For in the early days of our wise queen's reign, in spite of an ordinance against using new doctrines or ceremonies without authority, and the proclamation against King Edward's service book, which had been given out the month before, things were left to go on with as little mud-stirring as possible, until Parliament could be brought together. I doubt not the poor old knight lamented bitterly the high-handed days of his old master, King Henry, but he was helpless, and a day was fixed for the funeral to take place at our little church. Well, I remember that sunny January morning, and how I dreaded what was to come. At an early hour, great numbers of people came flocking out of Rochester, Sittingbourne, and the villages around to Longdean, for since this was but the first year of the Queen's reign, no one knew as yet of a certainty what order would be taken in ecclesiastical matters, and the news that a gentleman was to be buried after a new and reformed manner attracted many, since these things, being the first that had been seen in Kent, were accounted strange at the time, and somewhat boldly done, when as yet the old religion was still in force. The people came rejoining with baskets of food, as though to a wedding or a glutton mass rather than a funeral. To me alone, in all that multitude, it was an occasion of sadness. It was the first time the people had had brought home to them that the days of England's shame and bondage were over, and when I looked upon the crowd before the gate, eating and drinking and laughing, as they waited for the body to come forth, I began to know what Mr. Drake had meant when he said that a weight was lifted from England's heart, though it only made heavier the load on mine. So brightly shone the sun, and so radiant were those happy people, scarce one of whom had not lost a friend or kinsman in poor Wyatt's mad attempt to do by force what God had now done so quietly by Mary's death, that I alone of all the world seemed sad. And in my utter loneliness, I turned away and wept bitterly. Mr. Drake was in the room, talking in high spirits to a knot of preachers who had just arrived. Many, I was told, had come down from London to do honour to the great occasion, as they called it. But I forget their names, if I ever knew them. Good Mr. Drake must have heard my sobs, for he came forward out of the gloomy throng and spoke to me very kindly. Come, lad, come, said he, with his starry hand on my shoulder. Have a stout heart. This is a proud day for you, a day of rejoicing in the Lord, that it is given you to be a witness of England's new life, 
and not as were vouchsafed to me and others here to be a witness of her slow, cankering death. All England will praise you for this day's work. I, and beyond the seas too, many a poor Fleming and Frenchman and German, who was losing heart, will smile happily when he hears Nicholas Festing's name and envy his son the part God gave him to play. Hearing Mr. Drake's words, the preachers gathered round us and vied with each other in giving me draughts of comfort, rather, as it seemed to me, for their own glorification in each other's eyes, by showing their cunning in the brewing of such phrases than from any desire to console me. Affliction, Master Festing, said a fat, pale-faced man, is the mustard of the spirit. For even as that excellent sauce maketh the stomach lusty to receive meat, so doth sorrow stir up the heart to a desire for the word. And with that he smacked his lips and looked towards the sideboard, which Cecily was already furnishing with meat against our return. Rejoice too, my boy, in your tears, said Mr. Dith, for they be the water to drive the mill, which shall grind in pieces the stumbling blocks of your soul. And groaning, sir, said another, is the portion of the elect, who, being predestined to the eternal company of God, must not defile their spirit with the joy of the world, which fills the stomach of the eternally damned. Softly, softly, sir, imposed a heady-looking man. Comfort the boy, if you will, but comfort him according to the word. And who are you? retorted the other angrily to teach me what is according to the word, and what is not. Brethren, brethren, cried a mild, grave-looking man with a refined and scholarly face. I pray you remember on what errand you are, on a day of triumph like this, is it for the victors to quarrel? Moreover, it is time we departed, Mr. Drake, I pray you order our manner of proceeding. With that, we started to my no small joy, for I was longing to be alone in the old library again, and none of those men, save Mr. Drake, brought any comfort to my aching heart. It must have been a strange sight when I come to think of it now, as we crossed the sundered court and sallied out between the crowds of eager faces that lined the way, instead of the throng of clerks in gay attire who used to precede the coffin at burials of persons of note, swinging censers and singing for the soul of the departed, there were none but the black company of preachers in their gowns and Geneva caps. The people joined in behind me, where I walked with Miles and Cecily, and the long line wound down to the church in the valley between the frosty hedgerows and the young woods my father had planted. I knew the little moss-grown church well, for it was a favourite resting place for Miles' pigeons. They, I think, were the only living things that cared for it, except a few ill-tempered jackdaws and one or two old bent women who came to mutter prayers upon their beads amongst the mouldering stones. I do not think there had been a parson there since King Henry's time, certainly none that I could remember except on rare occasions when one came out of Rochester to shiver through a homily or a funeral, as well as the jackdaws and the chilling damp would allow. It was a place all shunned for its ghostliness, unless they had a special call to go there, which indeed was seldom, for there was not even a door upon which the parish notices could be fixed. The wood had long ago gone to make fires, and the widespread hinges all bent and rusty hung down with an air of mourning. But the pigeons and the jackdaws quarrelled for the place. 
It was a pleasant spot for them. All that savoured of popery, which was all the church contained, had been torn down. I think in Edward's days, rude screen and all were gone. Perhaps to cook a reformation pot with the door, thus the birds could fly in and out as they liked, and rest out of the way of stones and hawks till Harry hustled them out. The painted little windows still remained. They were very popish things with the virgin and I know not what saints upon them, but it did not matter for the spiders and the ivy, good reformers they, had nearly hidden them from sight. So as it was thought too costly to replace them with white glass, they had been allowed to remain. A grave had been prepared for my father at the end of the North Isle, where once was a chapel of St. Thomas, and where were still to be seen moss-grown and time-stained two or three tombs of the abbots of Longdean. There was great difficulty, I remember, in getting the coffin so far, because the pavement was all loose, and in some part quite thrust out of place by the rats and the fungus. As many of the people as there was room for thronged in after us, and jostled each other for the best places with many a rude jest. Such irrelevance was very hard for me to bear, but I do not wish to condemn them for it. It was done from no ill-will to me or my father, but only from the same exuberant spirit of joy, which was beginning to fill all men's hearts, when each day they saw more clearly that England's night was done. The preachers alone seemed in earnest, for they, good men, had suffered much, and this thing that we were now upon must have seemed too serious and heaven-sent for idle gaiety. I was more at ease when the scholarly-looking gentleman began the service. His soft, full voice quieted the people directly, and the beautiful words he spoke kept them in rapt attention in spite of their crowding to see what was to be done. No wonder, for now they heard many for the first time in God's house the voice of prayer go up in their own sweet English tongue. The preacher began with a collect, in which he commended the dead man's soul to God, and prayed that his sins committed in this world might be forgiven him, that the gates of heaven might be opened to him, and his body raised up upon the last day. So lovely did the well-balanced, earnest words sound in our dear old speech, that I saw tears in many an eye before he had done, and the Amen, in which all joined at its end, was half-choked with sobs. Incontinently they lowered then the coffin in the grave, and covered it with earth, while the old preacher read an epistle taken from one Thessalonians. For deeper and deeper grew the silence, and less and less my pain, as the heart-stirring words fell upon the listening throng. I would not, brethren, have you ignorant concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as other which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus is dead and is risen, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So the solemn periods marched on to the end. Wherefore comfort yourselves one another with these words. The white-haired scholar kneeled down and began with a loud, full voice to sing in English the Paternoster. A sound as it seemed to me like the rustle of angels' wings filled the mouldering church as the whole throng with one accord kneeled with the preacher and joined him as he sang, women and all. Neither I nor any there, I think, save the preachers, had heard such a thing before and surely it was the sweetest women's voices that made our singing sound so holy in my ears, and lifted up my heart with such a heaven-born content, that at last I could feel indeed that it was not a day for sorrow, 
but one in which I too must rejoice with England. Our paternoster was followed by a sermon in which, after a few words on death and eternal life, the preacher fell to exhorting the people to be earnest in carrying out the work and not to be content with the pretended evangelical reformation, suffering such things to be obtruded on the church as should make easy the returning back to popery, superstition and idolatry. They had seen, he said in Germany, the evil of suffering, under colour of giving small offence many stumbling blocks, which after the first beginnings were hard to get removed, at least not without great struggling. But indeed, I remember little of what the good man said, for I was but a boy then, and my mind would ever be fixing itself on the jagged ends of the rude screen, which had been left sticking from the wall when it had been hewn away. Pity is it, I said to my thoughts. They were not clean-rooted out. Even now they might wound a man's limbs who was passing unawares, and time will come when they will grow corrupt, and as they rot away, make the arch unstable. Little I thought then how true a tithe those same poor beemens would prove of all that was to come on England ere many years were gone. End of chapter 2 Recording by Shreya Sethi